Welcome to the Valarin Perspective. We explore working, leading, and finding value in an uncertain world. I'm Aaron Smith. I'm Benjamin Carsage. And I'm Chris Vaughn. Let's get rolling. Hey, everybody. Uh, we have some pretty abstract and hopefully interesting stuff to dig into today. Uh, ben and I have been having a lot of conversations lately where with the intent of trying to understand what the layers are uh, at which we're discussing all these topics and, and looking for solutions to you know, organizational design, organizational behavior. Um, we've talked a lot about things like, for example, incentive and culture. And, you know, as we talk about this stuff, we we're thinking, you know, those things feel like they're at about the middle of the stack. Like if there was some kind of a hierarchy where process, like, you know, which meetings you go to and, you know, who talks to who and how we do the specific things is like at the very top, like the most granular kind of part of the hierarchy. Well, what would be the most abstract? Like what would be the lowest parts of that hierarchy? You know, again, incentive is, is literally uh, something we put into our culture so that we can create the kind of behaviors we want to see. But there's like, here's another question. Why do we even do certain things? Why do we even behave certain ways in the first place? And this is where a lot of interesting conversations have come up for us. And we started to kind of explore what is at the bottom of the stack. Like what are the kind of core concepts that drive human behavior around organizations? Yeah. And uh, it, it was, this was a, a really cool, like last week we had this and I, I came up and I, I was sort of, okay, there, I, I try to like break things out into what is this for, or what is this built upon? You know, like I have an idea that process or work systems, their intention is about alignment or relationships. Um, and, and those two things should drive the processes and work systems that you end up creating. And that that's, that's fundamentally like, that's it. Uh, and then I was like, what are team, what's the the core elements you need to form a team. And I have ideas like humility and trust, respect and um, goal or purpose and capability. Like if you have these sorts of core three or four elements, then you're likely to have a team that'll be able to achieve what it's supposed to achieve. And one of the things that I was kept coming up for me are two things actually. One was incentives, which Aaron mentioned. And the other was like this idea of uncertainty. We're confronting uncertainty all the time, we're having to struggle with and manage uncertainty as leaders and as, and as individuals inside of organizations and just generally in life. And uncertainty felt very core to me as like, there's something about how we are responding to uncertainty that drives, and I was curious if it was like, is it drive all of our behavior? How much of our behavior does it drive? And my initial belief was that uncertainty does relate to incentive uh, in that it creates incentives. The uncertainty we see around us creates um, certain behaviors in us to try to resolve that uncertainty. Um, but that uncertainty feels like a more base layer. And so I was talking about that. Can we use that to sort of explain a lot of the patterns and anti-patterns that exist that people create as they work, um, and, and as they work together and as they lead and those sorts of things. And, uh, Aaron was like, I don't think that answers the question. I don't think uncertainty by itself is a sufficient answer to like, why do these sorts of patterns of behavior emerge, whether good or bad, or is it all just about resolving uncertainty? And so I was like, okay, well, let's follow this path. Let's see where this goes. Um, and, and what we actually, after discussing it, Aaron came up with this idea of like, there's also an, a need for, and the way we best describe it's like ego validation, a need to be perceived as valuable or to actually be out adding value, some combination of those things. 
that seems really important, that seems to really drive people's behavior. Um, and again, you, you can, I, I, I can see how this could take a positive and a negative bent, right? On the positive side, it's like, hey, I want to be adding value to the world and I want other people to know I'm adding value so that they trust me to add value. Um, on the negative side, it could take a lens of like pride and like, hey, I'm, I'm really good and I do add value and I need to be amazing and I need to be perceived as amazing and I try to create an environment that, uh, that yeah, hits that. F- fear too, I think, actually. Yeah. Like fear of like, oh God, what if I'm not adding value? Right. What, what if, if people what if the think tribe, I'm not? What if the tribe views me as useless? Exactly. Like what, like what, is, what does that mean? You know, like what, like d- the, I think that, that that's a crisis actually deep in the human core is, uh, is if, the, if the tribe views me as useless and I'm, I'm essentially an outcast um, and I'm not adding value, then uh, all kinds of horrible behaviors could could come out of that fear-driven behaviors, like you said, or um, you know, narcissism slash ego-driven behaviors. So yeah, and and so there were a lot of other words that came up for us, and they were like success, failure, value. All of those things relate focus, um, and, but there was this idea of like uncertainty and this need for ego validation, again, either being perceived as valuable or actually providing value, um, not always the same, maybe, maybe sometimes the same. Um, both of those cause anxiety for us. And that's that, that's that fear. That's that like, man, when I am confronted with uncertainty, when I don't know what's going to happen, um, I, it, it creates a stress response. Like I, and if it's something that I feel is important to me. And a practical example of this actually is, uh, and, and again, we we often I can think we can really see these two things in action a lot in the practical problems we see. So to get to bring this up to an actual example for a second to illustrate the point, um, you know, Ben and I may have talked about this before, but it's an example we often give when we're teaching, which is we have observed in uh, previous product development environments we've been in where there was a point where the customer stopped feeling like the products we were delivering were resonant. The customer stopped feeling like these guys are listening to me. These guys understand what I want. And we were delivering stuff that they just, they were like, I don't want this. And, uh, when we were confronted with the reality of that, it was a very almost traumatic kind of event for us. There was an immediate, there was a first response, which was like, well, wait, I thought we were really good at this. I thought we know, I thought we knew what they wanted. We always seem to be in such lockstep with our customers up till now. And so it became almost like a panic. And then it was like some, somebody or some group came forward and said, well, hang on a second. We do actually know we are actually valuable. We are actually providing this. It's just that we need to look at the data differently. And it's funny because we talked about data recently and how to view data and how, um, you know, and, and it's and how we can contort that to meet our emotional needs uh, and tell the story that tell the narrative that we wanted to tell. And again, why do we do that? Right. Yeah. Well, it's again back to that idea of ego validation. What I found so fascinating is I think of examples like that and I'm like, you know, we managed to change the narrative to actually, you know what? Here's the thing. The customers, they don't actually know what they want. See, we're the experts. We're the expert product designers. We're the expert software developers. We're the expert game developers. Like they don't know. They don't know what they want. You know, I, I don't know if you heard about Steve Jobs, but nobody knew that they wanted iPhones before Steve Jobs made them iPhones. And, you know, this is this is a 
a tr- there's truth in that. Yeah, but it's you also got your two percent truth very, in there. It's very twisted to for us to not acknowledge the fact that not just did we fail to understand the uncertainty built into the environment, but we also failed to acknowledge the fact that we failed, Right. that we had a goal, which was to give the customers what they wanted and we didn't do it. Right. And so in that moment in time, we failed to add value and oh, what a horrible feeling that is. Yeah. Well, we, and it's, it relates to the idea of uncertainty as well. If I, and, and we were just talking about this in a historical context, which we'll probably get into in a bit, but when I'm looking at data, I can feel very informed. And even if I have no idea what that data means, um, I can often feel better knowing I have it. And we, again, we talked about this when we talked about reporting. Um, it, and it, even though no actual practical uncertainty has been reduced, which by the way, it's not wrong to try to reduce uncertainty. Um, no, no practical uncertainty has been reduced, but because I know stuff, because I can look at charts and those sorts of things, I feel like the uncertainty is lower. And if I look at that through a certain lens, I feel like I've added value. And, and so look, look, my team did a thing and numbers moved. And when I look at it through this perspective, you can see how that's valuable, right? Mm-hmm. And that may be correct, but often it may not be. And we have to be very careful because we are driven by this desire to validate our own ego and to reduce the uncertainty and show that we are actually in control. And that was a word that came up a lot, the and, idea of control. And I think and I think that's I just had a light bulb turn on. I think that's the relevance for us with when we're talking about these things and with, you know, Valarin and what we're trying to do with Valarin and how we approach it's it's not just, you know, it's sort of understood now, especially in the software space and a lot of modern business in uh, consulting that the world is changing and we need to do stuff differently now. But it's not just about, you know, agility is really bringing a new framework for doing things uh, and in into the fray. And I think we've sort of broken the mold a little bit when we start saying, well, actually, agility is about being different as well. And, and I think what we're doing right now is we're actually exploring what does that actually mean and how deep does that go? And, and how, how deep are those incentives and behaviors? Because actually, again, the thing Ben just mentioned, you know, estimation, we were just talking to a, a, a company that we were consulting with um, a couple hours ago. We had a meeting with some of their leaders and an estimation came up and, and that was something that snapped in for me too. So they're like, how do we estimate? What are the things we should do for estimation? And we're sitting there and we're saying and we're thinking, you know, you can actually put a hell of a lot less effort into estimation and get way more accurate results if you can change your mentality mm-hmm. around estimation. Mm-hmm. But if you if you insist on staying with your old mentality of having to just clutch onto that certainty and force yourself into making a plan, you can spend days or weeks on estimating and get nothing out of it whatsoever. Right. No actual Actually negative value. You could get negative value. Yeah, you could be less certain than you were going into it. And companies do this all the time. So so that's, I think, really what this, this is about. It's about digging down and going like, what is, what's happening in our brains? Yeah. And, and as we interact with each other, that's causing causing this. And again, hopefully we can get into some historical precedent and, and provide some examples of like where we see this behavior in action. Yeah. I want to, I want to hit something that I see, um, as a loop actually between these two, I, you know, I, I worked at a company for a long time. And one of the things that I, um, reflected back to that company in, in, you know, surveys and talked with people about 
was I, I saw it as like a vicious cycle. You can have your virtuous cycles and your vicious cycles. Um, this was a vicious cycle and it was between the idea of pride uh, and fear. Um, and I, I saw these playing out. And when I, when we were talking about uncertainty and ego validation, I was like, oh man, this is like right in that space yeah. where there was, there was a constant tension inside of the organization between grand reveal style efforts and early showing to players and getting a ton of exposure because, you know, the game had like a huge, uh, huge player base and lots and lots of ability for people to respond to it if we made any changes and all this different stuff. And so you'd see these different like approaches by different leaders and the dominant one, and I think this is unfortunate, felt like it was uh, the grand reveal. And when I, I was like trying, I remember thinking about why is this the case? And I saw it as like, well, on the one hand, we're very proud of how good we are. And that's, that's, that was based on a reality that we had been successful. However, it was, it was also like projecting that success indefinitely into the future. And I think that was where it, and, and it interestingly struggled. enough, precluding the possibility that there might that we might not be the best in the future for a bit, even even just for a bit. Exactly. Um, and and the, or that that what we're doing now is different than what we were best at or are best at. Correct. That we were doing yeah. something meaningfully distinct from that, and we have to be careful. And so what you'd see is this: like, well, we're the best at this, and so okay, what does it mean that we're the best? What well, means we're going to make the best decisions, and that means we don't necessarily need a ton of feedback because we know what right is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when I was like, why, why are we doing this? In some sense, this felt so antithetical to what that organization believed, but it was so present. It was, it was there as like this, no, 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 we're, don't worry. We're gonna have the right answers. We'll know when this is ready. We'll know when it's good enough. We'll know, we'll know, we'll know. And in that there was this need again to be perceived as like, I think it was an ego validation. It was like, no, we've had our ego validated because of our past success and we need to maintain that. And one of the ways we maintain that is through continuing to believe that we are the best and we know the most and we're going to do the best things. And so here's the other part of that loop. The other part of that loop was fear. Um, and I think the fear came from the real uncertainty that we didn't want to confront that what if we're wrong? Um, and that was also a reason to not put something in front of the actual audience, not put something in front of the player. A lot of times it's like, well, what if they don't like it? And, and instead of being like, well, then we'll find that out and that'll be great. It was like, no, 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 no. Because we know we're the best. Why would we ever put something that we're not sure they're going to like in front of them? Yes. So let's wait. And you saw these two things feeding and on that, that, that uncertainty is what drives the fear that I don't know what's going to happen. And the ego validation drives the pride and they loop. And so now well, I'm scared to release anything, but that's okay because I don't have to because I know I'm the best, right? And everybody was like, well, good. That gives us certainty that when we're ready, we'll know. And then, and so we never have to get to the point where we acknowledge the fear and, and really confront what I consider is, again, a vicious cycle of negative behavior that led to some number of projects just going on and on and on without a real exposure to real, to a real audience. So I think that's just one example that I saw. And and this was like, you know, you saw this at different layers of the organization. Sometimes it happened at a team layer. Sometimes it happened across huge swaths of the organization. This idea that like, one, we don't want to release because we don't want the players to react badly because we're, so we're scared of what's going to happen. And two, don't worry, we don't have to, because we're so good. Mm -hmm. And in both cases, I think there was a lie or there was a, 
it wasn't as true as people thought. We weren't as good as we thought we were. And that was demonstrated sometimes when some of those projects would go live and get tepid or even negative reactions. Um, and, and that even though we, we knew it should have gotten to the point where we knew it was going to be good, but it did, it wasn't. And, and again, it, when you look at it backwards in hindsight, it's like, well, of course, why, why did we think that? Um, but so, so that, that was one side. And then on the fear side, yeah, like genuine uncertainty and like, how are the players going to respond? But often when we would release something that didn't take this approach, players were fine with it. Some of them didn't like it. Sometimes it was like, oh, I didn't, I'm not sure that part was good, but they were often happy to see something done rapidly. Um, and so I think both the fear and the pride were misplaced uh, in, in reality. I'm going to jump in and add something to that. Uh, I have several friends that work at the company ArenaNet that puts out Guild Wars 2. You know, it's a popular MMO. It's managed to stand the test of time against WoW and other MMOs in the field. I think it came out in 2012, so it's eight years old now. And uh, besides Guild Wars 1, that's, that's ArenaNet's only IP is Guild Wars 2. So I've been told... Um, not breaking under, not breaking NDA, mind you, but there have been multiple projects that have been started and abandoned at ArenaNet for the, the reasons you just outlined, Ben. To your point, you know, we do do we want something that we know is going to be successful? We know uh, Guild Wars Two is successful. Do we want something that's going to be successful like that? Because we know what that formula looks like, but without uh, without the the validation of player data coming in and people buying and continuing to play their game they were just kind of tepid about putting that toe in the water. They they don't want to release something they don't know is going to be a hit. And that has caused that idea um, that upper management has taken and leadership has taken has caused a lot of frustration within the developers in that community because mm -hmm. they do have these great ideas and they have projects which are perceived as being really good or potentially really awesome, which aren't necessarily seeing the light of day. Now, now since I've heard this, I, I my understanding is they are moving forward on some additional stuff, and I don't know what that is, but it, it fits exactly with what you're saying there, that it actually creates a culture of division within the company when you see people that want to move forward with the type of project, you know, that they, they, they think is going to be successful, but if, you know, if the boss isn't satisfied or the boss doesn't think it's going to be successful, it doesn't move forward. And there have just been a string of multiple projects over the years that have uh, kind of fallen into this category. So, yeah, yeah. that's exact, exactly what you're saying, you know, fear versus you know, the, the data approach. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because uh, one of the things we were talking about around uncertainty earlier uh, today, like right before we, we started the podcast was, you know, what has really changed between the way things used to be and the way things are today? Because again, we're, we're all, so, all of us sort of acknowledging that there's something different, that there, there's a need for a new way of, of, of doing things. Um, but actually, there's a micro example of of that shift right there with the arena net example and with the example we just gave. It's like when you were a startup, when you had five million dollars and 40 people and you were scrapping together your first product, did you know that that was going to be successful? Like, did you know that that product was going to make a billion dollars or a million dollars? Did you know that you were going to hire another 300 people? Like, did, were you certain of that? No, of course not. The, the, the question itself is ridiculous. Right. Yet somehow four or five attempts later uh, and after that first thing has released and become a slamming success, now all of a sudden there's this belief that you can have that certainty. 
Isn't that fascinating? Right. Like you, it would, it would, no one would have questioned that the environment was highly uncertainty, probability of failure, overwhelming, you know, we're just going to take our best shot and go for it. But all of a sudden, once, once the ego has been validated, one, once we have created certainty from uncertainty, we almost lose our ability to then once again, go back into uncertainty or once again, go back into humility or like an area where we don't have ego validation. So I think that that transition is really interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and again, the, the historical examples we were giving were like, it seems like the way the kind of uncertainty that existed a thousand years ago and the way people reacted to it were different than they are today. And, yeah. and, it, and it, I think we talked about like, well, you know, a thousand years ago, and again, this is an arbitrary timeline, 2000 years ago, you know, the, the assumed control was far less, right. Mm -hmm. That the average human being had over their environment, you know, like it didn't take much for someone to literally die back, back then. And uh, a lot of those things were completely outside of any circle of control that a human or a, even a group of people could claim to have. Nowadays, we live in a world where we have mastered most of the environment. And so our assumption going into it is we we do have value. We can create value. We do have control. So those moments when we don't or where we're presented with the possibility of failure or the possibility of lack of control are terrifying for us. Because we, we believe we and it's it's I love actually the the connection there between the the story of we went from knowing we had no control and so we just had to make the best of it right we and we knew that everybody knew we probably weren't going to succeed but whether it was five people or 40 people or 100 people in that startup or whatever as it grew it was like i hope we can make this work and and then you do and then you shift into like well now we know we can make good things right and it's like actually no you know you made a good thing yeah. <laughs> um but that's different from knowing you can make good things and that's actually like that's a common th problems super that, super um, where we believe that just because someone at some point in the past did something well and now i'm actually placing this in the context of right now right you go back 2000 years and um a virus that that wouldn't even have been called a virus starts sweeping across the world and what do people do dying in in droves and and you know there may have been they may have believed that there was something about uh, the spirits or sin or something like that, that was related to this. And, and, um, there, there could have been some amount of like, uh, oh, I just hope you don't start coughing because if we do, we know that there's like a 30% chance, or it seems pretty likely that you're not going to make it. Um, but we're not, I can't do anything about that. I don't know what to do. At some point we figure out like, maybe if we stay away from the people that are coughing, maybe I won't start coughing and that seems good, right? But that's like as, you know, that's as far as it is. And other than that, you're just, you have to still live life. It's not like there's some massive amount of food you've got stored up or wealth you've got stored up if you're most people. Um, and, and you know, it's, and, and, and again, I love that example because we can talk about COVID in a exactly. second. Like when it comes to this, I love that example because there's, there's, there was, there's no assumption of control, right? Right. There's no, the, the idea of success and failure in the context of dealing with that is, is almost like, like, honestly, probably the closest thing you could come to is like, we as a society didn't pray hard enough. 
Right. That, that no, was the problem. I was, God's I was thinking, really like, it's, pissed it's at us. It's a dice roll. And we right? didn't, we did, clearly we were all were not praying enough and that's how we failed. That would be the closest you could get to that. But now look at today and how we're like, and again, I don't want to get political about this at all. I'm not interested in that. But like I see two sort of preeminent reactions uh, as far as groups of people and their reaction to the pandemic um, when it comes to this. One is we have control. We can control this. We need to control this. There's so many things we could be doing. We should be wearing masks. We should be testing everybody. We should be distributing vaccines. We should be working together in a global front. Like, like there's there's this. And, and, and again, um, there's no judgment coming from me about the, the efficacy of these arguments. But actually, the other argument I primarily see is this is stupid. We're overreacting. This isn't that big of a deal, which also in it ironically, is based on how much control we have, right? right? Like, no one would go back to the Black Death and be like, ah, oh, this isn't that big of a deal. You know what I mean? I feel like we're overreacting to this. And the reason why is because everyone was fucking dying. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas today, like, we should be so lucky, lucky that a global pandemic only has, like, a, whatever, a tenth of a percent mortality rate. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, whatever it is. And, yeah. and what's funny is already in the time that the pandemic has been raging, we've we've dramatically reduced the mortality rate just because we figured out and disseminated the information about how to deal with it in the hospital so quickly. Right. So and, yeah, I just, I find that fascinating. But again, to me, it's not about the, the logistics around COVID. That's yeah. not my point. I'm more saying I just, the way we're reacting to it as humans today versus again, the way we would have reacted to a, 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 a de- deadly disease 2000 years ago is based on this assumption that we can control it and we should control exactly. it. Exactly. And, and I that, just find that, that fascinating. It's that idea that aren't we past this? Aren't we better than this? Yeah. And, and even though and I think if you ask someone intellectually, they're like, no, this was always a threat. You know, the mm-hmm. World Health Organization has been saying for a long time, like, hey, it's possible we get another big pandemic and it could really like knock us out in big ways. And it yeah. happened in certain places. Um with like uh, SARS and various other, mm-hmm. like you, you see, and you saw Ebola. countries, yeah, yeah, you saw countries actually dramatically shift how they would respond if this happened again. And a lot of those countries are doing much better under COVID because they've had a recent experience of a similar or of an of a of an outbreak. Mm-hmm. Um, right, and and so there there's something to be learned there, but it's also we have this belief now that like we should be better, right? We're better. Our society, humans, we can overcome this. This shouldn't threaten us and the it's way also, it is. If anything bad happens, it's because we failed to We didn't do control. the right things. As yeah. opposed to going like, well, it's actually because the world is chaos. Um, and and again, I'm, that's not an excuse to not do anything, but it is the recognition that there's massive uncertainty in the world today, even though we like to think just like that video game company that's like, I'll wait now that I know I can do it right. I'll wait till it's right before I ship it. We're going, well, we should be better than this because we've, yeah. we should be able to solve this. And if we can't, it must be because it's somebody's failing. It's a failing. false pretense. Exactly. It's a false pre. The false pretense is that we now have control. We have now figured right. this out. And the, yeah, and we're not. We don't. And and it's not to say we can't. And it's not to say, like you said, I don't want to get into the politics of like, well, should we be looking for a vac? Blah blah blah. How do we respond? Like, it, that's the the reality is that there is still uncertainty there's massive uncertainty yeah um and that the the world is chaotic and we're confronted with with a couple of things that massive uncertainty which is again one of these two things we were kind of talking about today and the other one is a threat to our ego as a, a species as humans 
We don't want this stuff to be threatening us anymore. Um, and, and they still do. And it's, I, I, again, I think it's interesting because we're talking about how these two things trend as well. And actually, you know, we talk a lot about fixed and growth mindset when we're teaching students and, and consulting with companies. And um, if, if you haven't heard those terms, I'm not going to go into a ton of detail about them, but uh, it's from a book uh, from an awesome lady named Carol Dweck. Uh, she's a um, basically she started as a child psychologist and got into a bunch of the theory around this stuff. Really life changing book. I would highly recommend you take a look. Um, but we talk a lot about like fixed in growth mindset and how to address those things and how to educate ourselves around this stuff. And we, we, but we, I think we view those things as relatively time static. And uh, what's interesting is like back to the trend of the two things we're talking about, the trend in uncertainty and the trend in ego validation, Mm. the trend in uncertainty is that we feel like there should be less. And so every bit of uncertainty that still exists becomes more painful. I find that to be such a fascinating concept. Mm. So like you, you could have one point of uncertainty for every 100 points of uncertainty that existed 100 years ago in your life as a human. But that one point of uncertainty is 100 times more painful than 100 points were right. a thousand years ago. Uh, and, and that's so interesting. And, you know, Chris, you've talked a lot about like social media and like all of the noise that we have today. And I think in a weird way, this creates uncertainty for us and a lot of pain. You know, people are depressed, people are lonely, people are all these things. And it's shocking really, isn't it? Given all the tools we have at our disposal to, to make all these choices and do all the things we yeah. want to do. And so, so the trend is again, that uncertainty is more painful. And I think the, that when we fail, whatever that means, our egos are way more bruised than they were before and in many respects. And I, I find that Aaron, you bring up you bring up some solid points there. I want to jump in and yeah. and talk about speaking of social media. Here's an example of well, look back a thousand years ago when we're talking, you know, hy- our hypothetical example of a thousand years ago when it was, you know, man v lion or man v beast, man v environment. There were things out there, there was a lot of stuff that we knew we didn't know. We simply did not know what we didn't know back then. Mm-hmm. Today, we like to think we know what we know and that we, we like to have an idea that there are things we don't know, but at least we're aware of them. That's not always the case because data changes uh, with time and, uh, and experience. And, and a good example of that, getting back to social media, was when Facebook created the like button. Uh, they they thought at the time, hey, this would be a great idea to allow people to positively give a thumbs up to their friends and everyone will will like it and enjoy it. And they thought it was just the coolest thing ever because the data at the time they had said this was a good idea to create this like button. And all of our test and focus groups came back and said, yeah, this is awesome. So they implemented it worldwide. They had absolutely no idea in retrospect. You know, now I think it's been I don't know how many years on, I mean, at least 10, more than that, that they put in the like button. They had no idea that that, that like button would cause, you know, hyper addiction to small little dopamine hits that our, our brains get from, from seeing that someone has liked our right. stuff or that people would actually go into uh, depression and anxiety because they aren't getting liked. They aren't getting thumbs up. And they, they had no idea that like the, uh, the, the ego or the, the uh, development of of some teenage minds would be impacted by the having this like button available or or not seeing any reaction to it. Like it was just not something they had. It was even wasn't even on the radar as developers yeah. when they put it in. And, th- and now we're looking back. We're we're seeing very real 
and clear and present dangers involved with social media in terms of addiction and and depression and anxiety and all these things because we have the data now to look back. So something that we didn't know we didn't know was the potential impact of a of a like button, you know, but that wasn't any degree of uncertainty that anyone yeah. would have ever had before because Facebook at the time was on this kind of, you know, brave new world, this new frontier of, hey, look at this awesome way to unite people. And we just simply didn't know what the potential dangers and pitfalls were. That that And that's, again, it hits both of these. It hits uncertainty and it hits ego validation, right? Um, I put something out there and before I would just put something out there and I wouldn't know unless if someone made a comment and I know a lot of people don't make comments. But now, I, there, I, when I put something out there, I have massive uncertainty. How are people going to respond? Are they going to like it? Are my friends going to like it? Are people going to appreciate what I've put into the ether? Um, Congratulations, and, you got 500 likes. The tribe has decided you added value. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and again, tie it right into that eco-validation. Yeah. Right? Oh, good. A bunch of people did like it. Whew. Now my uncertainty can reduce. What I said was valuable. Okay, cool. So I'm now living in a world where this is something I can do. And, and what, what I loved about where, where you were going with this, I think, mm-hmm. is that transition, that company or humanity goes from growth because I have to be, because I have to be in a state of continuous mm-hmm. learning yeah. to as I believe more and more that I am good, I am good at what I do. I am able to produce value um, and I'm in control. There's low uncertainty. I've managed to, to weed out most of the uncertainty in life. You actually shift from growth to fixed. And it's, it's on the false pretense that you actually have reduced the uncertainty you're experiencing. And you know, it's funny again, uh, that's so, so succinctly put. And, uh, and I think we've just made an unlock here because again, we've often described the state of the world when it can, again, this does have a lot of relevance to the work we do and to the, the environment of agility and like how are new companies doing things in new ways. Um, we've often discussed when we, when, when people are saying, well, why do we have to do things a new way? Um, we often teach that, well, because there's more uncertainty in the world uh, now than there was before. But actually what we're saying now is that it's not necessarily just that. That could be true. But we've actually come to challenge that in a lot of ways as we've looked at history. It's like, is there really more uncertainty now than there was 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago? I think it's debatable at the very least. But put that aside for a second, because what we're actually talking about is that we as human beings have an inclination to become more sedentary in that way the more certainty that we create. Right. So that, that, and I think that's, that's also interesting. So whatever, if you believe that's true, then we are at our most sedentary state that we've ever been when it comes to the fixed growth mindset paradigm and how much pain we can absorb into our lives as a result of uncertainty Mm -hmm. and a result of lack of ego validation. So actually, you know, it's funny to note back to the Facebook example, those kinds of things give us access to, to ego validation that we never had before as humans. Yes. Like the only, there were very few ways to get that kind of ego validation in the, you know, a hundred years ago. But, um, and, and if you didn't have access to it, if you were in a particularly poorly validating environment, you may go years and years and years without any validation. Now anybody can jump on their computer and make a post and get 500 likes and achieve that kind of validation. It's, right. it's really interesting. And, and it also, what it does is and it's, it unlocks the uncertainty. And the way I'm kind of viewing in my head right now is there's the amount of uncertainty has only been reduced, but so much of the uncertainty we were never exposed to. Yeah. And as we 
start controlling more and more of the environment. We just unlock more uncertainty. We just discover more and more uncertainty. Yeah. And and I love the example of the like button there because you had a like button. Oh, cool. That seems like a neat thing. I'll like the things my friends post. Well, that one I didn't like very much, so I'm not going to like it. And you don't realize that the friend is like, oh man, Ben didn't like that one. I mean, he's liked all my other stuff. Is Ben still friends with me? Did Ben not like that? Does he think it's dumb? I don't know. Not as many people, actually... Only like a third as many people like that one as like my other stuff. Are people not on Facebook anymore? Do they not like me? Am I not? And, and suddenly like you just unlock and, and it, it seems ridiculous, but it's again, in some sense, you could say that the like button actually reduced the total uncertainty in the system because now you got to know if someone liked it or not. Now, not 100%, you know, uh, accurate or anything, but like, oh, I now know if someone liked this or didn't like it, uh, or maybe if they didn't, if they didn't click it, or if they at least were neutral to it or something, uh, or didn't see it. Um, but suddenly, you now you're faced with like that didn't make my life any less stressful. In fact, my anxiety went up, um, and and we do that over and over and over. Like that's that is the the idea of like I, I wrote something that I kind of want to I want to like read out. Um, while we were talking about this last week, is as we move away from the dominantly task work world, our uncertainty is heightened. Um, and it's not actually that there's more uncertainty, it's that our exposure to uncertainty is just continually being unlocked. And our need for ego validation becomes more difficult to meet. Simply surviving, like you said, there were so many people where they would never receive any validation. And so, it, but that was just the way it was. It was assumed. It was, I, I mean, why would, like, why would I get validation? Right, exactly. I'm, there was no, there was no presumption that I would have validation. Right. I might have, I probably have a couple of friends or my family and they may like me or not, but we're all stuck with each other, yeah. right? Cause we're serfs or peasants or, or whatever, pioneers, like going across the American West or something. And it's like, I, I'm not like relating to a bunch of people. My validation is in some sense, I'm still alive and right. the people I care about are right. still alive. And that's, and that's enough, right? That actually gives me plenty to do um, every day. <laughs> and it's a known value. Yeah. Um, whereas now surviving is so easy and, I, and I'm, I'm not going to, obviously there's parts of the world that's not true, but for so much of the modern Western world, survival itself is so easy. It's no longer a validation hit. Yeah. It no longer demonstrates that you're adding value to society because you see people who are surviving when they're adding very little to society and they know that themselves. Um, so that need for ego validation becomes more difficult to meet. We are actually making life harder for ourselves in some sense as we are trying to make it easier because we misunderstand what is truly our goal or painful for us. And, our, and all of it, all of what, we're what we've done as civilizations to some extent is this constant gaining more control of the environment, reducing the uncertainty, proving we can do things. But as we've done it, we've only found un more uncertainty, more need to prove. And, and what, I think something else we talked about that was really cool, the work went from being primarily about labor like physical labor, and as it starts going up towards a mental space, mm -hmm. it actually shifts the type of anxiety and what it means for validation. Because, you know, again, even 200, 300 years ago, you could go back and be like, well, I mean, what did you do that added value this year? Well, I farmed my crops, or I mined for ore. And, and like, how do you know that's useful? Well, because I got a lot of ore. Well, because I generated a lot of food. Like it's, it's obvious, right? That's what I did. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, most of us are not doing anything like that. We're like, how do you know you added value? My I, boss said I did a good job. 
people yeah. liked my post on Facebook. Like, <laughs> you know, and, and there, and so we're left in this world where it's no, it's, it's moving into a place. And the, what's, what's a question that I don't know the answer to is, is that actually a much harder thing for us to be constantly in a mental space and con- Dealing with the mental difficulty. Certainly, I think all of us can agree that it's a way higher anxiety place for us. For sure. It's a way higher anxiety place. And I would argue that, you know, 500 years ago, if I'm Farmer John out uh, tending my crops so I can feed my family, to to your point, Ben, I mean, you add value in that you go out and do your job that's expected of you and your family doesn't die. No one starves to death. You've done what you what you needed to do and you've added value. It's not like anyone's going to come along and, you know, hang a hang a like ribbon on your fence because they they enjoy the way that you, you know, did your fields that year or something. There was no right. way to disseminate that information about the work that you did. Today I can uh I can make a little design on the top of my coffee or bake lasagna and put a picture of it on Facebook and get 20 likes for it just right. for a stupid cup of coffee or or a lasagna. And that that kind of constant social validation isn't something that we as a species have ever had to to, to deal with before we don't we in the day farmer john back in the day or whoever they didn't need constant social validation because it was just their job it was just an, an expectation in this labor environment that that's what they were going to do because they had to for survival today we don't right. have to we don't have to post pictures of our dinner on facebook we don't have to do any of these things and yet we've become accustomed to this culture of constantly needing social validation across a variety of platforms as well as in person at work and just there's just the way that we approach one another is so much more social because of technology and so in some ways it's taken away a great deal of uncertainty and other ways it's added massive amounts of uncertainty getting back to your point you were talking about earlier Ben and uh, it's huge I, anxiety. I, I'm just we as a species weren't really made for just constant social affirmations, this constant attaboys through a virtual environment like a like button or a, what a notification on Instagram or pick your platform. Um, and yet, that's that's where we are. And I think that's uh, that's changing not only how we interact with one another in person and virtually, but it's also changing how we're reacting in the workplace because none of us are immune to these things. No matter what position you are at the company, whether you're the top dog on the top floor or the you know the guy on the bottom floor, it doesn't matter. We all interact socially outside of work in these social media environments where we're needing this constant affirmation. And how does that change? Uh, and I'm asking this more hypothetically, I'll hand it off to you guys, but how does that change how we approach work, how we how we approach what will be what we think will be accepted, won't what won't be accepted, and why? Is that being influenced by our constant uh, desire and craving for for social attaboys through technology? Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, okay. when when I think about and and the the origin of this was, why do different patterns emerge at work that are trying to deal like what are they trying to deal with what are the the behaviors that people pop up they're they're that are healthy or unhealthy honest or dishonest ways of 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 relating to what is real um why do those emerge why do those emerge and and if i look at it through this lens of well okay so i've got uncertainty that i'm trying to solve and uh it is noteworthy that as you go up an organization the more you are generally expected to be a resolver of uncertainty or someone who is certain um, you because you are supposed to have answers and make decisions and people look to you to have that and I, I mean I, I don't know how many other people have seen this I've absolutely seen leaders who ha- had no business being as confident as they were um, very s- 
strongly stating things as if they were facts. Um, and everybody goes, oh, phew, I'm glad someone's in charge, right? And, it, and it's, it's all of us going, oh, thank heaven, someone just reduced uncertainty. And I'm sitting there and sometimes I know something that person doesn't and I can follow up with them after and kind of talk, hey, that may not work. Um, but I think it, it, for me, it's like, the, hey, that's actually not correct. But you said it so confidently. You gave yourself potentially and everybody else that was around you this idea that like, I don't worry, don't worry. The uncertainty is lower than you think. Don't worry, I'm here. I'm good at what I do. I'll make it go um, away. I'm, I'm gonna make that uncertainty go away. And there's so many ways we do that that are not actually healthy, that are detrimental to the work that we're doing, uh, to the goals that we're trying to achieve, uh, to come back to that loop of pride and fear that I that I uh, described earlier. So it's almost like, what if, what if you had a leader that instead of, focusing purely on removing uncertainty or, or creating the, the uh, impression of removing uncertainty? What if instead they focused on reducing anxiety with uncertainty? Um, right. That, that, Increased comfort with uncertainty exactly, across yeah. the organization. Yes. Exactly. Like which, which one serves us or do we need both or, you know, do, do we need them both in a different ratio or. Yeah. And that, I think that's actually, when I think about um, what I do, what I've done as a leader, a lot of it is trying to help groups of people become comfortable with the uncomfortable reality mm -hmm. of uncertainty. Yes, there's anxiety. And there's a bunch of bad ways we can pretend we've dealt with it. Um, and, and this is... And again, I think that one of the premises of that, um, that you've articulated and we've kind of touched on several times in this is that the belief that if I can get you to do that, or if we can get ourselves to be that way, we'll actually make better decisions. Um, yes. We'll make consistently higher efficacy decisions. Because again, back to the example of the startup, you know, that's like, okay, with the uncertainty, they know there's a high possibility of failure, but they're damn if they're going to, you know, really put their best foot forward and think of all the creative solutions they can and how to be competitive in the marketplace and really listen to their customers to get that edge. And then, you know, you stop doing those things later after you've become successful. But it's like if you could retain that same humility and that same comfort and that same resilience towards uncertainty, you could actually be just as potent for product two or product three or product four or, or certainly at least provide yourself the best possible chance of hitting the mark again, right? So, so, so I think that that's, that's really, really, really interesting stuff. And that, what you just said, that's the word that I was like, shoot, we should talk about, or at least mention this, the idea of humility. Uh, I mean, you just mentioned the word. And when I was, when we were talking about this, earlier, I was just like, that's in some sense, the idea of humility and being humble, both as an individual and as an organization helps you as you deal with uncertainty and ego validation. It counteracts the pride directly by saying, I may not be as good as I, I wish I was, or I can become better, right? Like, and that's a, that's a huge value that, that being humble as an organization, as an individual, as a leader provides and helping your team become, helping your organization become more humble and recognize, hey, there's a lot we don't know. Um, and just because we've done something successful in the past doesn't mean we're going to be successful in this next time. This is already a different world because what has happened in the past is behind us and the world doesn't stop changing as we move forward. Uh, and I would even argue, as we've said, like it's changing faster and faster and faster over time. And it helps you deal with uncertainty because the humility is, yes, the world is uncertain and I don't control it. I don't have perfect agency over all that's going to happen. And I probably never will. 
Um, and so by, by creating a healthy humility and just acknowledging, hey, there's stuff we don't know and there's stuff we can't control, there's stuff that we may not be as good as we think we are, um, all of those things will help you counteract the idea of uncertainty and the idea, the, the unhealthy behaviors around ego validation. Um, and I, I actually think that there is still a path towards towards those things, towards resolving the uncertainty and towards validating that value is actually coming out of the system if you are humble. Um, if you start from that place, you do land in that in a really good spot. Um, so, so yeah, so I wanted to hit the idea of um, uh, humility. And, and there was something else. I wanted to read the second quote I have, I wrote down, because um, one of the reasons Aaron and I were talking about this, we were really trying to figure out what is it we're trying to do for organizations and what do we see in the world. And so um, what we wrote is we are confronted with uncertainty and a need for ego validation, and we develop mechanisms for dealing with them that can be healthy or unhealthy, dishonest or honest. And we want to help people deal with them in healthy and honest ways. And I'm, I, I liked that idea when I when I was writing it down, just because you're you it it doesn't deny the uncertainty and it doesn't deny the need to add value or the ego validation side. But it says let's approach those things with healthy in healthy ways and uh, in in honest ways that really accepts the reality of our situation um, and doesn't. Uh, you know, blow smoke up our own butt with how great we are or pretend like we know a lot that we don't just because we're supposed to because we're a leader or something like that. So humility is a word that's come up for me a couple times. Yeah. Uh, while you were just talking about, you know, honesty and dishonesty and like how, you know, what what does it look like for us to help ourselves and to help each other as the world changes? And maybe it's true that we've become less humble as a, as a as a civilization because we have all these cool new gadgets and cool new methods and cool new knowledge. But in what we've sort of just deduced is that regardless of that, or maybe because of that, humility is more important than ever. Right. Um, and and that to me feels like very important. You know, there's a lot of guys and gals out there talking about humility and uh, vulnerability and these, these kinds of concepts. Um, your Brene Browns or your, you know, Gary V's like, you know, Gary V I think says pretty consistently that humility is the number one factor Mm -hmm. in success. And I, I think that's a really interesting, that's a, that's a, I don't think anybody would really argue that humility is important, but I feel like that it would be the number one when you start to view it as like, that's the number one thing. Like, I think that's pretty unconventional. Uh, and But I feel like with everything we're talking about right now, that sort of comes to light to, you, for me. You know, in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking about that and I'm going, is humility the number one thing? And I, I don't know, but what I will say is it feels like it's the biggest switch from almost our default state as organizations or leaders. The reality is that if we're an organization, we're like, well, we want to be compassionate, which I think is another thing that's really important. Or we want to add value to the world. We want to serve others. Like, I think those things are important. Um, most organizations, though, are already like, yeah, we're on board. Um, and and not just intellectually, but actually in a lot of the ways that they try to relate to the world. Not obviously not all corporations, but a lot of companies, a lot of startups, a lot of um, 
companies do value the idea of service and compassion, those sorts of things that I think are really big deals. Um, with humility, though, I actually think it runs very counter to how we're taught to behave as organizations and leaders. Um, we are taught, and this comes back to that idea of almost fixed mindset being something that's that's pushed into us um, in our modern world. Uh, you, you know what you just said, like we do believe we're better than I think it's people public, were. Public education too. To win is to know. Right. right? Exactly. To, exactly. To win is to know. To 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 know is to have certainty, and that means control, and that means that you know. And and by the way, my ego, I need to think I'm. <clears throat> great and other people need to think I'm great, right? And especially if I'm a leader, people need to believe that about me. People need to know that I know what I'm doing. Like that's really important. Do people know that I know what I'm doing? And I know what I'm talking about. And I know, exactly, I know what I'm talking about. I'm making good decisions. My decisions are great. And I think that humility may be such a big deal to so many people right now because it's not, it, it goes in the opposite direction of how we're trained. Um, in, and, and again, not intellectually. It's not like there's a company out there that I think would say, no, I don't want humble leaders. But everything, to come back to the idea of incentive, everything they incentivize may be to encourage leaders that are proud and create an illusion of certainty and create an illusion of control even when none exists. And they're so, they, that organization's leaders feel so much better when they know they've got a project leader in charge of something that can come and tell them, don't worry, everything's fine, I've got all the problems under control. Yeah. And if they believe them, which often is not true at all, um, if they believe them, they're like, oh, thank heavens, you know, Jenny's there and she's got full control and she's gonna solve the problems and man, she just seems so confident, right? Or like, oh, look, did you see Bob? Bob just got up and stood and told the whole company <laughs> what amazing things they're going to do. And I'm reminded of, um, a brief that was given every year um, that that we we got at at a, at a company we worked at a video game company we worked at, and it was I can't remember what it was called the Creative Vision Brief or something like that, and it was this huge put together thing that the entire company saw that talked about um, one part of the company that was doing creative development, uh, and it was like here's all the amazing things we're going to do. And it was given by someone who was so confident and they got up and they were charismatic and they said, we're going to do these amazing things and these amazing things. And there's going to be, you know, these aren't actual what they were, but like, we're going to do books and music and movies and TV and blah, 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 like, and, and many other games and blah, 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 like all this stuff. And, and the first time he, that person got up and, and, and said that, everyone was like, that's so cool. This stuff is awesome. I'm so excited about the future, which was the in desired intent, right? We wanted to be excited. But as the years went on, and very, very little came out of that space. The, the environment shifted to cynicism around it. It was like, well, this is the brief where they promise us a bunch of stuff that's not going to happen. But the weird thing is they still got up. <clears throat> they still stood there and gave us potentially sometimes timelines, um, the, the scope and the scale and the amazing impact these things were gonna have. And within the official structure of the organization that was celebrated. So yes. like that, you know, as you were talking about this, uh, something popped up in my mind is we just use the phrase to, to, to know is to win or to win mm -hmm. is to know. And what we're actually, I think, trying to move to, trying to encourage is 
to win is to be comfortable not knowing. Yes. And well said. Um, what we're talking about here is actually organizations walk in with the premise of to win is to know. <clears throat> and I think what's happening for all of us is we're all out there, we're all working, we're all working for companies, at companies, for our own companies, whatever. And more and more we're seeing that winning is not, that, that knowing we can know everything and we're still not winning. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what's freaking us out right now. It's like we we're good at knowing, we're good at acting like we know, we're good at we we are we are we've mastered that, but somehow we're still not winning, and that's creating so much frustration. And what we do with it is we double down even harder on knowing. Right. Like okay, how do we know harder? How do we get more data? How do we make better process? How do we get you know? People saying the same things more times in more meetings, like whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, it's no, no one steps back and says, hey, are we seeing what's actually happening? Right. You know, it's, it's funny. I can't remember where this came from. I feel like you might have told me this, but there was some consultant or some leader that was just like, well, how are you going to, the company that he's working with was like, well, how are you going to figure out what's wrong with the company? He's like, well, I'm just going to go talk to the people and ask them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, I always find that that's such a subtle story. And I feel like if you haven't worked in a corporate environment, it may not resonate as much with as few words as it does to me. But, uh, it's, it, I just find that hilarious because that's exactly right. It's, it's, we built these structures around not confronting Exactly. That pain, that uncertainty. And that I that is one of the things where I, when I think about dishonest or unhealthy systems, that idea of not actually confronting the reality of what is going on inside of your organization. Um, and because it will disrupt your certainty, it will disrupt your sense of control. It will re- disrupt your sense that you know what you're doing or that you're good at your job or that you're adding value. Mm-hmm. And that, that quote, I think it was from Confessions of an Unreal Engineer, which was a, a brief article someone wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said something to the effect of he would go into game companies to work on the Unreal Engine and he was really good at it. He was really, really good at it. Um, and when he went in to talk to them, he would be able to report, here's all these things that are wrong with your organization that have nothing to do with Unreal. And they would go like, how did you know this? Um, and it was, well, I, I just talked to your people and it wasn't like they were hiding this. It wasn't like I had to use police interrogation techniques or, you know, hypnotize them to tell me their secrets. I literally just walked into rooms and said, what's going on and what's what's busted and what's going well? Mm-hmm. And they just gave me all these answers. Mm-hmm. And I collated those answers and I then said, well, it looks like these things are happening. And I handed that to you. And and the the his takeaway from that was all the problems that your organization is facing are known by your organization if you are willing to ask. Mm -hmm. And over and over and over, you and I have encountered worlds where, and we've been the people, I don't want to ask. I have built processes that I've put teams through, large teams through, that weren't working. And some people came and were brave enough to tell me, but you know what? I didn't ask the rest. And I was like, no, 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 the process is good. The process is good. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. No, no, no. Once we figure it out, once you're used to it, it'll be fine. And the reality was, it was bad. 
The process was bad. And I look back at it and I go, that was a really silly thing to do. But the problem wasn't that I implemented a silly process because I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that again. I'm going to do that a lot probably in my life. <laughs> I'm going to encourage other people to implement silly processes. Um, the problem was that I wasn't open to the reality that after I implemented a process that I didn't know was silly or not to somebody telling me it was, and I wasn't asking, is this a silly process mm -hmm. to the team? And that's, that's humility. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that so many of us are not trained to do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to jump in and say, at the last corporation I worked at, it was the same thing you described. Nobody uh, that worked outside of the direct day-to-day boots-on-the-ground organization had an idea what was going on within the various organizations of the company, right? There was a complete mm -hmm. disconnect, utter disconnect between boots-on-the-ground, day-to-day worker bees and the queen bees that lived upstairs, you know, on the on the top floors, right? And uh, not only that, there was uh, – I had a, a rep with uh, – I probably to the dismay of the – the higher ups around the company, I had a rep for always going into my boss or my boss's boss and closing the door and saying, here are issues I see within the org and things I think we should address. And I, I was reprimanded. It didn't go into my official file, but I was reprimanded verbally several times for telling them the way I thought it should be. And I'm, I'm simply by trying to identify issues that were going on within the company. So a good friend of mine at that company actually worked in HR and they disclosed to me uh, later after I had left the company, they said, our company gets more information from the reviews we get on Glassdoor from people who have left the company than we do from from people within our organizations because the mm. higher ups just won't go and talk to people and ask what's going on. Mm -hmm. And that way, and that way, you know, whenever we have these giant town meetings or you know, the, the all call meetings where the whole company shows up, and there's a lot of uncertainty in the room. What areas of the organizations are being let go? Who's being transformed into what? Who's moving around? There was all this uncertainty, and nobody would ever address those things because they just simply weren't in touch with kind of the anxieties that were being produced within the, the lower ranks of the company or right? lower middle, upper middle. I mean, it was only the highest people that really knew what was going on and nobody would talk about what the issues were. And to me, when you have to go to an external source like Glassdoor and read what your disgruntled employees who've left the company have to say about you, right. that's a really bad environment. That doesn't incentivize anyone to, it didn't incentivize me to go in and talk to my boss or boss's boss about, hey, here are process issues I see within our org, things that are, are readily addressable and easily fixable. I mean, I was just essentially told, hey, stop it. It's not your job. There's an official process. I'm like, yeah, the official process doesn't work. Feedback isn't listened to. So what's the what's right. the point of me giving feedback through the official process if it's going to be, you know, met with with nothing, falls on deaf ears and is ignored? So, yeah, it gets back to Wait, your, and, and, and your that, point. That when I, again, I frame this and I go, okay, cool. What's going on for the employees, right? Well, they want to reduce their uncertainty. They want control over their environment, their lives. They want uh, validation that they're doing a good job. And what does it mean to do a good job at a company? Is it, look, show up, get your work done, go home. That's a good job. Because if that's what you want from people, it's fairly easy to create. Is it come in, do your job, look at how you might be able to do your job better, look at how the organization is functioning, provide that feedback to the people who might be able to do something about it and uh, be proactive about helping with that change. Okay, how do you create that environment? Because that's something that I think so many companies want. 
Well, and again, I think that also goes back to the kind of uncertainty we're dealing with today mm-hmm. because, you know, but we we often use the examples of like farming or manual labor or coal mining or whatever. Uh, you know, the, you that model of just go to work, get your work done, punch in, get your work done, punch out. Uh, applies very readily there and it's a relatively and, and and then what ends up happening is the the role of the leader is just to kind of manage right. those those very known operations with clear inputs and clear outputs right and so understanding success in that space and therefore getting the necessary ego validation out of it is a much easier and more streamlined process yeah. for us all yeah. the way up and down the chain actually and yep. now the now what's interesting is Again, we we are constantly confronted with the reality that we don't have that level of simplicity present in our environment, and so we manufacture it, uh, and we we refuse to acknowledge that uncertainty, and we just manufacture uh, the certainty. Like uh, like I have a spreadsheet yep. that shows that everyone did their work today, and that all of that work is now done, and that. <laughs> <laughs> the next chunk of work will readily be broken off and then they will digest that work and then that work will be done. And that, and I, we know how long that work will take to do. And it's funny. It's like, no one's asking like whether that matters at all or whether that's right, right. or whether that has anything to do with the problems we're seeing. Like, like the, the discussion, the alignment, the problem identification, all that stuff I think is wrapped up into this idea that, well, maybe we don't know what the problems are. Yeah. Maybe we don't know what we're supposed to be working on. Yep. Well, and if you do live in an organization and you do want the people who are going to go, how can I work better? What does it mean for me to add value? What are the other problems that I see and how do I raise them to the rest of the organization? If they have to go through a bunch of processes that don't seem to work or they have to find this survey on the HR portal that's like, oh, I have to file a complaint or have to submit a process improvement request or whatever versus I can go and talk to somebody about this. If you create those systems, a lot of them very well intentioned, you are actually discouraging people potentially from helping your organization run better, from mm-hmm. providing you with the information you need to be more successful. And you do that also when someone does come and you say, yeah, you're wrong. Or you say, is this what you focus on? Could, are you doing your, like, focus on your job, do your job well. You know, let, let, the, let the other experts handle this. Because even in the factory environment, one of the things that Lean did that is so cool um, in the Toyota production system, uh, they would have people working the line and the expectation was that when something went wrong or if an improvement could be made, it didn't matter where it came from. The person who identified it as something is not working as well as it should be, regardless of who the leader was in the space, regardless of anything else, they were celebrated for having identified it. And then they were often allowed to like lead the effort to improve. How do we make that better? Uh, and th- that celebration of the identifying of like something's not working right here doesn't mean that it, they necessarily came out with something better. It doesn't necessarily mean that like the problem was wonderfully solved or anything like that. But there was this celebration of the idea of you put effort into more than just screwing in uh, the door or whatever, whatever you were doing on the line of creating that, that Toyota. Um, you did more than that. You looked at the broader system or you looked at your system and said, I think I could make this better. And we celebrate that. We encourage that. We need that. We recognize that's actually how we win long-term is if everybody is going, not just, can I do the job of mining the coal, but can I go, maybe there's a more efficient way for me to mine coal. Maybe there's a more effective way for me to mine coal. And 
letting those people actually create the change in the world that they see in their mind versus shutting them down and saying, that's not your job. Hey, sorry, you're undermining your leadership. Hey, um, you know, sure, you can do that, but we're behind right now. So we'll, we're going to, we'll let you talk about process improvement once we've gotten over the next milestone and everything is much better. And you realize that because you're never talking about making anything better, you never actually get to the milestone where those mm-hmm. things are great. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you, like that, that classic, like, I don't have enough pro- time to solve the problem of not having enough time. Um, and, and that, that cascades and then people just stop. And then what they do is they show up, they do their work and they, and they leave. And you've disincentivized, you know, Chris, to the story you said, you were disincentivized ultimately from trying to change things. Because even the the idea that you suggested, which was, hey, things I'm not sure are going as well as they could be, and there may be a better way to do this, and I'd like to talk to you about it, creates uncertainty. It challenges the pride of, of others. It disrupts the control in the system and the process. Uh, and all of that is like, no, we want to shut that down because even if it's not real and even if it's not effective, we're way more comfortable in a world that we can fool ourselves into believing we understand than we are in acknowledging all of the uncertainty, all of the, the chaos, all of the, the wildness that are in our world. Yep. And I think the pride issue, at least within corporations, my experience has been, I'm sure you guys have noticed it at your former place of employment as well. Uh, the pride issue is really front and center to eliminating the humility aspect of any of this, right? A lot of people are just really prideful that they have made it like, and I understand, it's, this is not You're a slight to on, be. this is not a, sli- a slight on managers everywhere, but you know, once you've worked hard to get into that managerial position or you've got that big promotion and now you're the VP of your org or whatever, I mean, yeah, you've worked hard for that. That comes with the you know a certain degree of of accolades and a certain degree of pride that goes along with that. And you don't want to be told by someone maybe maybe Ben walks in the door, Aaron walks in the door, and they have a legitimately good idea about how to improve a process or how to eliminate an issue or improve morale or drive efficiency or whatever it is. But because of the pride involved with the person on the receiving end, those those suggestions are likely to fall on deaf ears. Or won't be received in a way that, that this person will feel that the, the person on the receiving end, the, the boss listening, they won't be incentivized to actually listen. You may, Ben, you may come in with a nugget of gold. Like if we just made this single change, here's what it would take to implement it. Here's how long. And here's, here's what I think we would get out of it. But if the person's not listening through a lens of, or listening with ears of, hey, let's, even though know, this employee may not have the experience I have, they, you know, they have other life experiences, but they may not have the experience I have within this company, within this organization. So I don't really need to take what they have to say seriously. It may be absolute gold. It might be a diamond in the rough and you might just revolutionize everything with your suggestion, but the, the pride gets in the way. Yeah. And it seems, it, it seems to be uh, from, from every, uh, on every managerial level, from like the, the lower middle managers all the way up to the CEO, there's a degree of pride involved that helps a lot of uh, companies not move forward in, in directions they could as effectively. I think yeah. it's everywhere you have humans, you have that pride. Yeah. And Chris, something particularly interesting about what you just said is uh, that's a reality that Ben and I are grappling with in our with our company, Valarin, right now, which is um, what does it mean that that's true? How do we respond to that? What's the best way for us to engage with clients? 
Um, one of the things that we've sort of generated some cynicism on over the years, um, having dealt with other consultants and seen other consultants operate is there is a, a somewhat common pattern of consultants really kind of padding that ego, actually, like coming in and um, and padding that ego or almost trying to overwhelm the client with their ego uh, to sort of break the client down to a, a place where the client is more um, <laughs> suggestible or, or submissive to the consultant's agenda. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and bo- both of those things, I think, feel bad to me and miss the point. And I think, I think they feel bad for both of us. And so we've often asked like, well, how do we deal with that when we go in and we say, because this happens all the time, you know, we sit down with a potential client or we sit down with a company we're working with, or we sit down with other leaders and they say, here are the problems that we, that I have, that I want you to help solve. And it usually there's an air of like, I'm in charge, I'm in control, I know what needs to be done. I know, and all I need is this is a common thing we hear. All I need is boots on the ground to just get this stuff done. And if I could just get this stuff done, I wouldn't have any problems. And Ben and I will start observing the organization and hearing even what this one POC is saying. And we'll very quickly get to a point where we're like, those aren't actually your problems. You have a bunch of other problems and those problems are deeper. And it's not out of pride that we say that. It's out of observation and listening. And the challenge is, is oftentimes, again, that presents that individual or that group with that uncertainty in their face yeah. or that fear of like, oh, my God, maybe we're not winning right now. Right. But or maybe, I, or maybe I'm not good at my job, or or however that my simple solution isn't going to solve all of it. Exactly. However, that's <laughs> translated by them, and 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 you're right. A certain amount of panic and fear does ensue there. And and again, we've been asking ourselves, like, well, how do we work through that, or should we work through that at all? Right. Like, is it possible that if we get a strong enough reaction of that nature, that it just means that we're not actually ready? Because one of the things Ben and I committed to early on is like we're not going to dodge working on the stuff that's important. We're not going to dodge addressing the things that we believe are valuable simply because we're uncomfortable or you're uncomfortable or your team's uncomfortable. Like what we want to do is help you get comfortable with that discomfort. If we could do that, we would do more for you than any consultant that comes in, slams a process in your face is, is going to, is going to do. And so that you know this this has led to a bunch of other discussions around how how do we do this effectively but it, i think that that's a very salient example that's like right in line with what you were saying chris is just like you know i think a lot of leaders and consultants and and anybody who's trying to enact change falls into the trap of trying to almost mold themselves around the existing paradigm of right. fe- of fear and and poor dealing with uncertainty instead of really trying to be transformative you know, and, and, I, and that's something, you know, I'm not going to say we have the answers here or all the answers, but it's certainly something that's top of mind for us that we're working on. You know, I remember when you went to LCU uh, when we were at Riot, and one of the things you said was that there were a lot of unknowns in the system, but they were all hidden when you got there. And it was all behind a veneer of like, everything's fine, even though in so many ways it was clear it wasn't. And I remember you said, um, there's a, I can't remember the exact analogy. It was something like there's a flood coming, right? There's a lot of water that's going to be coming at us. That's going to be very threatening. And the reality is it's already there. Um, 
And my stance, the place you wanted to stand, was not in stopping that water from ever reaching or pretending that water didn't exist. I remember you saying, I'm trying to help this team understand that I'm here to link arms with them and stand in that onslaught of all the unknowns and all the uncertainty and all the the thing, like starting to become honest about the things that we perhaps haven't been as honest about. And I want to stand with them and we can weather this. And that's how we come through to the other side. And I remember thinking like, that's it. Like, that's what you want to be doing as a leader is standing with that team. Um, and, you know, for some people that might be boots on ground, for some people that might be running high level cover, but in all cases, it's helping everybody understand, yes, there is water. Yes, there is chaos. Yes, there is uncertainty. And I'm helping you stand in it. And I'm here with you. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to BS you. I'm not going to tell you it's not there. I'm not going to stand up and tell you I have all the answers right now. Mm -hmm. um, what I am going to do is say, we will get through this together. And I, I think I actually kind of want to move towards like, what are the big lessons? And is there, what can we pull out of this practically? Um, and that's one is if you're a leader, what does it mean for you to encourage comfort with the uncertainty while also acknowledging that sometimes it's valuable to reduce it and mm -hmm. that it's okay to do that? Um, what does it mean for you to be comfortable with the idea of validating that the people in your organization are useful and they're, they're, they're good at what they do and that they're adding value and they're contributing in meaningful ways without that becoming a, sort of their, a pride that takes over and, and undermines your organization's ability to, uh, to, to, to react to what's going on because you're so certain of yourselves. Um, and, and I think the other one is, what does it mean for you to really be humble and encourage humility inside of the organization that you're in? Um, and humility, and, and um, there's a C.S. Lewis quote, which is, uh, let me make sure I get this right. Humility is not um, thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's less of a worry about the ego validation. It's less of a worry about um, everything that might happen. And it's more of an acceptance of like, that's not the biggest deal. That's not the most important thing is not whether everybody perceives me as valuable. It's how do we solve these problems? Mm -hmm. um, let's do that together. And that's what you were articulating when you were saying, I'm going to stand. We're going to link arms and that flood is going to come at us and we're going to stand there and we're going to take it. We're going to weather it and we're going to endure. Um, other leaders might have gone in that situation and said, don't worry, everyone. I have the answers. I can solve this. I'm here now. You're all okay. And in a short-term way, a lot of people might have felt really good about that. They might have been like, oh, oh, thank heavens. Thank heavens. Someone's here who's in charge now. Um, I, my certainty in my life has just gone up. Not really. Not, not actually. But I certainly, I feel better momentarily. And yeah. you, you instead said, no, what I'm going to do is help you understand how to deal with uncertainty. Yeah. I think another yeah. thing we can call out is um, that we can all collectively, and this is a little more abstract, so there's no practical do this here, but it's just to be aware that previous successes will, that we talked about this trend from sort of like non-sedentary to sedentary when it, or, or growth to fixed. That's natural. Like to sort of, the, I guess you could call it resting on your laurels. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't necessarily overtly feel like that, but it, it happens. You know, you just become naturally less willing to take risk because you don't want to compromise what you've already created, what you already gained. And I think that uh, keep in mind that your ability to weather that storm, your, the, the toughness, the resilience that you built up in yourself and your organization is what a, part, a big part of what allowed you 
to reach success. And if you lose that resilience, if you become too squishy and you won't take risks anymore and you just don't ever want to look bad under any circumstances, you can nearly guarantee that success will evade you forever. And so just keep that in mind. And if you see that trend going in that direction too sharply with your teams or with your organizations, challenge that. Challenge, challenge going back to a place of humility, going back to a place of, hey, you know, let, let's blow it all up. Sure, we have a million dollars in the bank, but let's blow it all up. You know, maybe we can go bigger this time. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening to the Valarin Perspective. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Send us an email sometime at perspectives at valarinconsulting.com. That's V-A-L-A-R-I-N consulting.com. Thank you for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Polarin Inc.